Shut up and sit down. Welcome to another episode of the Superhero Movie Club, a community of superhero movie fans. All nerds, welcome, but please wipe your feet at the door. I'm your comic book cultured host, Michael Maurer, joined by the movie maestro, James Skyler Hotsma, and the scientific scholar, Ben Anderson, and special guest returning for the second time, Twitter Tom is here. Yay, yay! <laughs> SHMC is your premier movie discussion podcast. Every week, we continue our journey exploring our favorite subject, superhero movies. Every fan sees the movies differently, so we gather some amateur experts to discuss certain aspects of the movie. Whether it's money, comic books, music, or science, SHMC talks about it all in this week's episode. Uh, been a while since I was in front of you. I figure I'll stick to the cards this time. (laughs) There's been speculation that I was involved in the events that occurred the freeway and the rooftop. I'm sorry, so, Mr. Stark, but do you honestly expect us to believe that that was a bodyguard in a suit that conveniently appeared, despite the fact that... You I know that it's how- confusing. It is one thing to question the official story and another thing entirely to make wild accusations or insinuate that I'm uh, a superhero. I never said you were a superhero. Didn't? Mm-mm. Well, good, because that would be outlandish and uh, fantastic. I... I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly, with this uh, laundry list of character defects, all the mistakes I've made, largely public. Yeah, okay. yeah. The truth is, I am Iron Man. Iron Man. And yes, there will be spoilers. All right, so let's start with some first opinions around the board. I want to get Twitter Tom's opinion. Tell me, Twitter Tom, what did you think of Iron Man 1? I love this movie, and I think for as much problems it had through development, that it really shined, and everything about the Robert Downey Jr., the casting, everything, I thought it was, it, it was just an ace in the hole for Marvel, and this movie really set it up for the rest of the MCU. Um, it's one of my favorites of the whole MCU out there. Perfect. And how about you, Skyler? All right. I view um, Iron Man as the other side of the coin of 2008 when superhero movies really kind of came into their own. Uh, one side's Dark Knight, which shows that movies, superhero movies can be dramatic, have weight to them, and be you know, just heavy-hitting films themselves. Iron Man, as I, I see as a uh, the side where the genre itself can be fun, poppy, quality, have some message to it as well, but then also just fine-tune its entertainment value because the first Iron Man is nothing if not very entertaining. And I still consider it at least among the top, let's say four, of the MCU to this day it's just a lot a lot of fun and ben are you going to be our dissenter or are you going to finally agree with everyone here (laughs) i actually do agree with everyone here if iron man were a beyonce single it would be crazy in love (laughs) that's good yeah and that's that's really all i have to say if you don't understand the metaphor then um go go listen to crazy in love and think about like what that song represents. Like you hear that song and you're like, oh man, this song's really good. Beyonce's going to be huge. Iron Man 1 was the first breakout. It was it was back when the MCU method was cool, when you could have a, a, a breakout origin story mixed with a not-so-prevalent you know, villain. It's, it's very easily that the villain... There's no ambiguity. Ob- Obadiah Stane is very evil in this movie but at the same time like having a really core and rich origin story that really brings us and really makes us feel for the character is i don't know what it takes to 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 put your finger on it but there's something that brings iron man one all together into this cohesive fantastic film 
and it's it's easily one of the best of the MCU, but I really don't have a specific reason why other than everything about it, really. Um, and let's talk about how it was a breakout financial hit. Hit me with some stats on the money, Sky Guy. Okay, so Iron Man made for a modest budget of $140 million. That's back in 2008. Um, made much more than that. Domestic gross sits at $318.4 million. So that's much higher than the uh, quote-unquote analyst experts were expecting it to do. When you add in the uh, $266.8 million for its foreign gross, uh, the entire worldwide gross is $585.1 million. So verified international blockbuster still sits in the uh, top 10 for 2008 big surprise i'm sure everyone at marvel was thrilled at what uh, this movie brought in yeah i mean this was the beginning of the new era that we're in right now of just constant superhero movies and because this was so successful because this had a, a clearly pertained formula you could follow the plot points of this film and sort of re honestly this is the, the one of it, it holds the novelty of being the first to use the MCU method and it still holds maybe the best performance arguably I would say Guardians might have done it better but that's opinionated but still this <laughs> this movie brought in the bucks it puts it put people in the seat to put my butt in the seat and this is the first taste of like Whoa! Is there a bigger universe out there? Are they gonna? It it develops this whole new method of world expanding in film, and of course, the more people feel involved with the film, the more money they're gonna spend to continue being involved with it. Consider this as well. This movie was the summer opener of 2008. It blew uh, movies like Speed Racer, Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, both of which opened the same month as it, out of the water. The year before this, uh, superhero movies consisted of Ghost Rider, Spider-Man 3, and Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. So people were itching for a good superhero movie due to the fact that there uh, really wasn't one for at least a year. And this one really delivered, and I think that uh, contributed to just how great it turned out. Yeah, and it was Iron Man, too. Who the hell knew about Iron Man before 2008? Barely even me. Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say Black Sabbath song, but thank he you. actually is—he uh, actually is Iron Man. If you listen to his song carefully. Oh, introspective. I believe it. All right, so we're gonna go next up into the comic book section and talking about the storyline as well as characters that were introduced in this film. And as far as story goes, this is a oh fuck. Who wrote this? Anybody remember? Just tell me. I'm hey, Mark Fergus Hawk. Ostby, Art Markham, Matt Holloway. All people we have never heard of okay. and we haven't heard of since. Very unknown. Just four guys. And the story is is very much ca came out of the Iron Man first appearance in Tales of Suspense number 39 back in 1963 where he's put into a cave and he's forced to make that hunky, junky Iron Man suit and get himself out of that cave in order to quit making weapons and become this industrialist who likes to put suits on and shoot baddies. That's honestly a shoe in a MacGuffin of Obadiah Stane and you have the Iron Man film uh, and also modernize it to the Middle East instead of in the Viet in Vietnam is where it originally was because that comic book came out in 1963. But oh. characters that premiered in this were uh, Nick Fury-ish. I'm, I'm not going to count that one because I think we can talk about Nick Fury when we get to the David Hasselhoff TV film, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. from 1998. And uh, that was written by David Goyer, by the way. That's the Dark Knight writer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that TV movie is a rich piece of history. It's very hard to find nowadays, actually, but it's still out there. Uh, next up, this is the first premiere we get of Agent Coulson. And Agent Coulson premiered in this movie, as far as to my knowledge... And the people at Marvel loved Clark Gregg so much that, like, keep putting this guy in films. He is a charming son of a bitch. 
and give him a TV show. Just they kept throwing stuff at Clark Gregg to do, and he's like, all right, sounds good. Um, but this is the first time you actually get to see him. They put him in the movie to have a few lines, but the whole cast ended up loving him, so they gave him more lines, and it spawned into this whole his whole character. Clark Gregg, you have you have risen from lifetime movie fame to this to this wonderful world of geekdom. Congratulations on your success. Big leap from the New Adventures of Old Christine. Oh, he was great in that show. <laughs> uh, the yeah, next, he was. <laughs> the next character I have on the list is uh, Howard Stark Jr. And this character was created by R.G. Goodwin and Don Heck in 1970. And he's very similar to the movie in that the movie they just they don't touch on him really. He's just shown in some slideshows. And this isn't really the first time you get to see him fleshed out, but it's it's the same thing that they did in the comic book where his his car act he's died in a car accident. He was he was stern to his child and the car accident is ambiguous, so you get to fill in the blanks wherever you want. I don't think the comic books have even taken advantage of who actually killed Howard Stark or if it was still an accident. And the movie gets to do that, too, of just like, was it really an accident or did Hydra kill him and all that good, fun, goodiness. Uh, next up, I have Ho Yinsen. There's a lot of characters in this, just a heads up, because it is an origin story and everybody's fresh. And this was the start of a new era. Ho Yinsen. And he came on Tales of Suspense number 39. That is the, of course, Iron Man premiere, created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Don Heck, the Iron Man creators, back in 1963. And he is the character, of course, best known for being Tony Stark's best buddy in that cave and building that magnetic chest plate that keeps the shrapnel away from Tony's heart. And while in the movie they kind of made it more of Tony's idea so that they could build on it, in the comic books it was it was mostly Ho Yinsen. And what happened was instead of instead of Tony getting blown up in a convoy, in the comic book he just he a, a landmine goes off and then Ho Yinsen makes this magnetic plate. I think in the movie they just have the arc reactor power the magnet that keeps the metal away from his heart, which is kind of fun if you don't understand arc reactor technology because no one does uh next up we have happy hogan played by director john favreau and he premiered in tales of suspense number 45 so not too long after the inception still with the duo of stan lee and don heck who are the godfathers of course of iron man and happy hogan's a fun character because he's just this guy who had a failed boxing career he saved tony's life and of course that made them best friends uh, what's interesting is in the comic books, he actually married Pepper Potts, and later they got divorced, and then later Happy dies in the Civil War event story, which, hint, hint, wink, wink, we might get to see in the movie. That'd be pretty fun to see John Favreau die on screen. Oh, we almost got it in Iron Man 3, but that's how I really got on Happy Hogan. Oh, he divorces Pepper later because, of course, the comic books have to give Tony and Pepper that nice erotic tension. Next up, we have Obadiah Stane, of course, Iron Monger in the movie. I don't think they ever called him Iron Monger in the film. We all just took that for granted. Stane was made in 1982 by Denny O'Neill and Luke McDonald. Denny O'Neill, of course, Batman fame and Green Lantern and Green Arrow Road Warriors fame. And it wasn't until 1985 that Obadiah Stane actually got into the suit of Ironmonger. Before that, for three years, he was just this business mongol. He had no real friendly relations with the Starks like they have in the film. Uh, all he did was just take over the Stark business and push Tony into this world of alcoholism. He is described as a master of manipulation. And of course, he's the one of the first of many villains to put on a suit, challenge Iron Man, and it's a suit-v-suit suit battle because that's the only way you can fight Iron Man, apparently, is to have a super suit of your own. Um, the only little fun little fact I have on him is just that he has this weird obsession with chess. And in the movie, they touch on that a little bit. And when, when Tony's flying in to target him, he asks Jarvis, like, how is that chess piece going to hold up? Asking about the suit. And I don't know if Favreau really is good at putting these little hints and winks into the movie, but that one is pretty deep cut. <laughs> I'm kind of bummed because quite recently we got a bunch of issues of Iron Man right around the time Ob Obadiah Stane became uh, popular into a, 
the bookstore I work at. But we did have an issue where um, Iron Man and Ironmonger fight for the final time, and uh, Ironmonger opts to uh, just kill himself at the end. That came in, and I'm kind of bummed I didn't pick it up, because I've heard it's a good one. Holy cow, he kills himself. <laughs> he does. He takes his repulsor right to his head. That's pretty freaking metal. Did you have something you want to say, Tom? Appropriate enough. Oh. Oh, yeah, what I was going to say is the only time they ever mention Iron Monger in the movie is when Obadiah Stane looks at Tony and says, hey, we're Iron Mongers. This is what we do. Other than that, they never reference, you know, Jeff Bridges as Iron Monger. Interesting. Good to know. I was actually curious when I, when I, when I first started the movie because apparently all the news people are like, the villain is Ironmonger, and I'm like, they didn't say that at all in the film. I thought it was just stain in the suit. I didn't know enough about Iron Man comics then. I was a wee little lad. Uh, next up, we have Edwin Jarvis, or in the movie, Jarvis, but an acronym. And he premiered in Tales of Suspense number 59 in 1964, of course, the Lee and Heck duo. And he is, of course, the, uh, the Stark butler. He's very similar to Alfred Pennyworth of Batman universe in that he's a World War II veteran, and, a, and he's got this history as a boxing champion. And... Also, a fun little tidbit is Edwin Jarvis, the butler, has is the longest unofficial Avenger. He's the only one to be there since day one of Avengers and have been there the whole time. And he doesn't, he's not even an honorary Avenger. He's still just the housekeeper. But now he's retconned into, of course, not a real human being anymore. He's retconned into Pepper Potts AI for her rescue suit. And... It has, apparently Jarvis, the AI, has a little crush on Pepper. The, the comics have a, lot of, have a lot of fun doing the, squeezing in the, the movie bits, while at the same time making them their own. So that's, uh, Jarvis doesn't turn into Vision in the comics. Vision's this whole different thing, too, in case you were wondering. Fun fact about Jarvis, there was a, an episode where, due to Tony's rampant alcoholism, he resigns. Uh, and in the comic, he, like, hands over his le- uh, letter of resignation. And the text for that letter is actually the actual letter of resignation for one of the artists who was working on Iron Man at the time. That's that's pretty freaking funny, actually. <laughs> Next, I have James Rhodey Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine. He was made by David Michelini and Bob Layton. In the comic book Iron Man 118 in 1979, and he is the second person to take up the Iron Man mantle, of course, during Tony's very famous Demon in a Bottle storyline where he becomes an alcoholic and Obadiah Stane takes over his whole entire company, and Rhodey has to take over as the new Iron Man. Ever since then, Rhodey is always involved in Iron Man stories in one way or another. He is the side character that is just always there. He is Tony's concerned best friend. He is one of the most respected people in Tony's life. Like he's shown up in the Marvel Universe at different points. There's he has he hasn't had a like a big breakout story of his own, which is weird. He's always just been a supplemental character to everyone else. Uh who do we prefer? Terrence Howard or um Don Cheadle? Don Cheadle. I don't know who either of those people are. They're the roadies, man. They're the, they're the two actors who played Rhodey. Don Cheadle manages to adapt the Marvel atmosphere a lot better than Terrence Howard does. And that he's Don Cheadle's a bit more comedic. He he's a bit more is a bit more savvy in his in his lines. Where Terrence Howard, I could actually feel the concern for Tony, for Terrence because he's really good at emoting as an actor. And with with Don, it's it's a lot less. Concern and a just more witty best friend. Whichever one's in Iron Man 3, I prefer that one. What I find interesting is the fact that Terrence Howard was the first person cast, and he actually made more money off this than uh, Robert Downey Jr. did. Which is funny saying now because you hear these news stories about how Downey Jr. makes $50 million for an Iron Man film, and it's just unbelievable, Paul, to think that. Yeah, it's like four times more than any other cast member. The next character I have that has premiered is Pepper Potts, and or Virginia Pepper Potts, and she came in Tales of Suspense number 45, same as Happy Hogan, 1963. And she is modeled after actress Anne B. Davis, sis, 
character <laughs> on the Bob Cummings show for all of you really deep comic book history nuts out there is that most comic book characters are I, well a lot of comic book characters are modeled after celebrities and I don't know who Ann B. Davis is but you know google that stuff see what's the what and she served as just this love triangle character at the beginning she was infatuated with Tony Happy was infatuated with her and Tony was off trying to woo a bunch of floozies eventually she marries happy and then happy dies and she goes back to working for tony and then she gets injured in an event with obadiah stain's son ezekiel stain and that creates a, a similar injury to what tony had in that there's shrapnel in her chest and they need to put a magnet in there to keep the shrapnel from killing her which is, wow, comics, you're getting too ironic a little bit. Anne B. Davis was the housekeeper on the Brady Bunch. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, that's pretty cool. And finally, we have Iron Man. And this is the first time we see Iron Man. And, I mean, I'm not going to describe to you Iron Man's facts and histories because the movie does a pretty good job of explaining them. And honestly, go read some Iron Man comics. What I am going to say about Iron Man is is what he was made to represent, and that he is Stanley wanted to create this character who transforms into this mili- this this personification of the military industrial complex. If it had a, a bad boy superhero, he's a character that deals with the complexities of war and weapons in the modern era. So back then it was it was commentary on the Vietnam War and what an industrialist has to do to you know be accountable for that. But nowadays it's a a commentary on our conflict in the Middle East because Iron Man has this superb technology, the most precise technology in the world, and it's it's it'll, it shows that nobody but the bad guys have to get hurt. It dis, it declares who the bad guys are pretty plainly, and then he takes them out with precision, with no civilian casualties. Like in that scene where he you know, evades, invades the Middle East and you see him targeting all of the people who have hostages, and he just takes each of them out, no problem. And it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a powerful hero to look up to, and just like, that's what we wish our military, our American military could be, and that's what he's supposed to sort of represent, is this industrialist who's who is the peak of military accomplishment while at the same time being snarky and cute all right well how about now skylar we just get to you and have you talk about music music of iron man is done by a fellow named raymond jowdy uh he'll be one of three different composers to tackle the iron man franchise the first obviously uh before this movie he was just kind of known as the guy who made the music to the TV show Prison Break. This was his real um, film breakthrough. After this, he'd go on to uh, do movies like Clash of the Titans, Pacific Rim, Pacific Rim, Dracula and Game, and probably his biggest thing since then has been the theme to uh, Game of Thrones. And I think he's done the music for most of the episodes, too, so good for him. This was, he's, a uh, exciting, he's a very exciting composer. I'm sorry, we all know who this guy is. <laughs> exactly. He's uh, and this was really his launching point. So uh, let's take a listen to what he came up with for the sound of Iron Man with the first track of the album, "Driving with the Top Down." And if you couldn't uh, hear that just from the clip, uh, Jowdy has gone on record saying that a lot of his uh, themes for the movie are uh, meant to sound very machine-like, rhythmic, you know, very orderly in order to uh, bring out the sound of Iron Man. I think on our last uh, 
Iron Man podcast for Iron Man 2, I mentioned that uh, Rage Against the Machines, Tom Morello uh, joined in on it. And I just found out, again, he uh, contributed to this soundtrack as well. So let's take a listen to the track Merchant of Death, which, as it turns out, would eventually become known as that car commercial song that they use to make their cars sound badass. God damn this this soundtrack has some sick guitar riffs. My God. If you read the if you read the YouTube comments for this, one of what like the second one down, at least when I was listening to it the other day, the second one down calls Raymond he calls me a Tom Morello wannabe, ironically enough. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It just says Rage Against the Machine wannabe. Yeah, and someone that's answered it. Well, he worked with Tom Morello. So he's probably doing it right. <laughs> Every other track is just some cool new rhythmic theme that you can just throw on, kind of like what you were saying last week with Incredible Hulk, in that it's music to get stuff done to. And that's especially true with the next track, which is Mark Two. Am I correct in saying there's a hint of the Iron Man overall theme in in, in the middle of that? The yeah. Yeah, you hear that pop up a few times throughout the movie, and uh, I think it's it's well done enough to be like, hey, you're keeping it consistent with this. Um, Jowdy's actually gone on the record as saying that his themes for this movie aren't so much character based, but rather plot based at what point in the story we're at at what point this theme becomes more prevalent than the other one i have to ask skylar are we going to get a clip of a a song that started the trend of the metal clanging sound as a beat it's very possible i can't it's like it's like a it's a i know we talked about this before that's like a marvel thing that started with iron man and continued through thor and just, just like that whole, just like the clang sound used as a beat of just metal on metal, bang. Listen for it in the uh, last track I've got on uh, the docket here. But first, let's take a quick listen to the track Golmira, which may have that certain sound uh, pop up. I know we I know we might be we digging deep into our knowledge here, but if someone were to play that track and ask me, all right, Michael, you sure you're sure so smart about your Marvel movies, you dummy, which Iron Man movie is that track from? You would have caught me. I would have definitely said Iron Man two. Really? 
oh yeah, that feels very much like Iron Man 2 sound. I agree. Well, it's a good thing that there's overlap between the two, but yeah, I, I could see it. See, the thing about Iron Man 1, the soundtrack is, like, for me, it's like, you know that's Iron Man 1. Like, Iron Man 2 and 3, I couldn't really tell you, or I couldn't even tell any song that that's from it. I couldn't even tell you how it goes. Like, that's what I like about the Iron Man 1 soundtrack, is like, you know that's from Iron Man 1. Well, if if I may, I think a lot of a lot of uh, Rewin. I, I hate trying to pronounce this guy's name because I butcher it. Iwajami. I don't know. <laughs> Just but, say Raymond. Yeah, Raymond. A lot of a lot of Raymond sounds. Uh, the electric guitar is very very prevalent. In Iron Man Two, you get a lot of the mix between the iron or the electric and the the bass guitar and the drums come in and there's heavier beats. In Iron Man Three, for some reason, everything gets a little bit lifted upwards. And so with that track, Golmira, it was a lot of that Iron Man 2 mesh of just electric bass and heavy, heavy downbeats. I think there's a general trend throughout the three movies. Iron Man 1 is a lot of rock band instruments, and then as they go forward, they become more symphonic. Because by the time you get to Iron Man 3, the theme is almost completely done by the orchestra. Whereas with this one, just... Guitar, bass, drums. To answer your question, though, before, the inception of the Anvil Clang uh, can be found in the track Mark One, which we don't have time for today, unfortunately, but that is actually a music track where it lines up with the movie. When Tony is making his suit, he clangs down on the thing, and the downbeats with the anvil and his uh, steel forging are exactly the same. Wonderful. So take a listen to the final track, which is Arc Reactor, spelled in a really derpy way, but it's from the uh, finale of the movie, and it's pretty B.A. That is definitely boss battle music. <laughs> For sure. Uh, funny enough story, I was got originally un- going to include the track Ironmonger, uh, which has the theme for, you guessed it, the Ironmonger, but this movie actually pulled a similar thing as Dark Knight, where uh, the music for when Iron Man and Ironmonger are first fighting on the highway there, there is no music, and there was originally some written for it, but it ultimately didn't get, end up getting used. All right. Well, I think that's going to have to wrap it up for music today, and we are going to move right on to the science section of SHMC. So, Ben, how are you doing over there, buddy? Doing good. How are you? Good. One of the, 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 the last person left in Mankato. So tell me, Ben. Is I'm... The, yeah? Am I in Mankato right now? Do you know that for sure? Oh, you're absolutely right. You're not in Mankato, which is great. <laughs> we yeah. are all on the road. Well, I, I watched the movie, and there's, of course, the scene where Obadiah Stane takes the arc reactor out of Tony. And Tony describes that when the arc reactor is taken out of him, he goes into cardiac arrest. So I'm wondering, because in the movie, he has enough time to go into cardiac arrest, go downstairs, get his other arc reactor and shove that in himself by himself. So I'm wondering, how long is actual cardiac arrest? If you're actually in cardiac arrest, you're not going to be able to get up and walk around. I guarantee it. I challenge our listeners, go into cardiac arrest, try to walk down a flight of stairs. The weekly challenge. The weekly challenge. (laughs) The weekly challenge, yeah. Stop your heart, walk downstairs, and and lift like a five-pound weight. You're not going to do it. Um, SHMC so, no holds no legal liability for you going into cardiac arrest. <laughs> yeah, don't. It's, it's bad advice. Any, 
It's self-induced cardiac arrest. We do not condone that. <laughs> yes, just uh, just for I, the for our legal team. I, I will talk, however, for a little bit about what's called the rule of four, and when it's it's like a a general guide for wilderness survival, and basically it says that you can go for four weeks without food. You can go for four days, like before you have to like really start worrying about dying. You can go for four weeks without food. You can go for four days without water, four hours without warmth, and four minutes without oxygen, like without air. So if you go into cardiac arrest, you have about four minutes to get out of it before you really have to start worrying about actually being dead. Hmm. All right. Next, I want to ask about the arc reactor technology. And can you, in the, your m- most, your your abundance of knowledge, try and bring that into the real world a little bit? So I always understood the arc reactor as just being a nuclear fusion generator thing, I guess, is how I always interpreted it. Is that accurate, do you, as far as you know? I honestly, like, they describe it in the movie as this clean energy source that is not energy efficient when it's in its giant form in the laboratory, but is very extremely energy efficient when it's turned into a very small thing that you can put inside of your chest. Um, because and you can also make it into you can also make it into like a bomb or a weapon or something, right? Yeah, I'm okay because yeah, that's what it powers so propulsors. Yeah, so I'm just gonna talk about nuclear fusion. So I think we've talked about nuclear fission before, but so that works by taking two very heavy atoms, smashing them together, breaking them apart, and there's a release of energy. Fusion is kind of the opposite in that it takes two really light particles and combines them together into a bigger one, which is accompanied by a release of energy. Well, because if I had to guess, the arc reactor looks like a a very miniature Hadron Collider. So I would assume that he's constantly exploding atoms in there creating, of course, excess energy that he's using to power the suit so cleanly. And it's an unlimited energy supply because he continues to spin atoms, which continue to hit each other and explode and get smaller. But it's, it's, it's a weird chain reaction that's contained, fictionally, because that's not how it works. Right, yeah. So the big problem with nuclear fusion in the real world is that to have energies high, high enough where you can get for example, two hydrogen atoms to fuse together into a helium atom takes, you have to heat it up so hot that you're putting more energy into making this reaction happen than you get out of it. So the goal is to get it to occur at a cooler temperature. And that's something that physicists are spending a lot of time working on, because if you could do this, it would be like the arc reactor, um, a source of clean, basically unlimited energy. That's actually pretty awesome that the Iron Man suit is already this hypothesized real-world thing that could happen. And I I see you don't really have a, a full answer for repulsors. I was just going to ask if you know what the hell that is. Um, Not really. Uh... Yeah, it's just this, um, this weird energy source that just shoots a laser and it pushes you back non-lethally. I don't know how it works. I couldn't be bothered to bullshit an explanation for that. <laughs> Some sort of concussive blast. And uh, finally, I want to talk about how what do you what what is the probability of getting a metal suit to fly? Because I mean, have we invented jetpacks yet? Even we have. Well, we kind of have jetpacks. We have things that basically they work in water, and what they do is they suck up water through a big ass tube and then shoot it up the back of this jetpack thing, and you can like float above the water. And you can find videos of this on YouTube. It's pretty cool. Yeah, the the problem with building a jetpack is that like getting a person up in the air, that's pretty easy. Having them land without shattering their kneecaps and just like having their legs rip all the way through their butt and whatever, that is much harder to get people to land safely. That's way easier. That's a way easier thing to do, of course. You just have them land because in the movies that's all they do. They just land. Right, but but in real life getting it, getting someone to like hit the ground at 40 miles an hour without shattering every bone in their body. That's the challenge. <laughs> oh. Jetpacks are easy to build, like shin guards to keep your shin from in one piece when you hit the ground. That's, that's 
Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> that's the actual problem of jetpacks. I think that's actually really cool that we've actually invented jetpacks, but nobody can use them without dying. They're like a one-time use thing. And uh, any other science you want to talk about, Ben? Uh, no, not really. I mean, there's a lot of fun, fun stuff that kind of happens in Iron Man. Yeah, we've talked about artificial intelligence before, right? For Avengers 2, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vision. Vision oh, yeah. is when artificial intelligence uh, and Ultron, because yeah. of course that was when it became a major plot point. Yeah, so Jarvis is uh, is an artificial intelligence, but we've talked about those before, so I'm not going to go on about that. Now it is your time to shine, Twitter Tom. So tell me, give me some fun facts, because uh, right. God bless your soul. <laughs> All right, here's some fun facts from Iron Man. What Skyler was saying about Tom Morello, this is a fun fact that I, I, I just watched this movie yesterday, and I realized this. Tom Morello, he was of... Rage Against the Machine. And the only time you see him in this movie is about five seconds right before Tony Stark puts on the Mark I armor and bitch slaps him across the, <laughs> across the, the cave and kills him. So I oh, my God. He, he, played a, he played a terrorist? Yeah, he was a terrorist in this movie. <laughs> and the only time he's in there is he, he, he has the gun and he goes up to the door and Iron Man comes out and he bitch slaps him across the cave. So I just thought it was ironic that he's in a band called Rage Against the Machine and he was killed by a machine. <laughs> Killing in the name so, of. What else I found out was that the script, when, when they when they made this movie, the script was unfinished. So they started filming without a, a full content script. So... A lot of the dialogue was improvised. Robert Downey Jr. made up a lot of his lines on the spot, and Gwyneth Paltrow had a hard time making stuff up on the spot. So she wasn't sure what Robert Downey Jr. was going to say. So a lot of her stuff had to be redone because she she wasn't sure how to handle. She didn't know what was going to be said, so she didn't oh. know how to react to it. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so, of course, we get the nice coyness. Right. And in it goes what to say is Jeff Bridges. He's a guy that would study the script. Every movie he's in, he would study the script, so he would know it backwards and forwards. So he went in not not sure what to do. So as soon as he told himself this was a you know a hundred and fifty dollar or hundred fifty million dollar student film, have fun with it. He kind of just rolled with it because him not knowing what was what was supposed to be said or what to do, it kind of made him uncomfortable. Another one I had is Jarvis. What that stands for is just a rather very intelligent system, and it's based off Tony Stark's dad, Howard Stark. His butler was named Jarvis, which you touched upon earlier. Well, yeah, and we actually get to see real life Jarvis air quotations in the in the show um, Agent Carter. Where exactly. he's he's played by uh, James Darcy, I think is his name. Right, and Rhodey's ringtone when when uh, uh, Tony Stark is going against the um, the fighter jets that are ironically named Whiplash One and Two, who was the villain in the second one. Um, <laughs> That's pretty good. He calls he calls Rhodey, and Rhodey's ringtone is the Iron Man animated cartoons theme song. I put a note in there too that. Uh, the old 60s Iron Man cartoon theme also shows up in the uh, casino scene because you have the awards gala. Uh, Rhodey says something like, think about Tony, he's always working. Switches over to the casino scene, big band version of that theme. Man, uh, John yep. Favreau and Kevin Feige were just on top of Easter eggs. Everything in this movie was just so subtle. And now it's so blatantly obvious when they reference something. What else I got is Jarvis. They were going to make him, because he was a butler in the comics, but since um, Dark Knight and Batman Begins was so prevalent that they had already had an Alfred. They didn't want to feel like they were encroaching upon, upon the Alfred-Bruce Wayne dynamic, so they made him an AI. And in my opinion... That worked out great. Another one was that Stan Lee based Tony Stark off Howard Hughes. And what he said was he wanted to get an inventor, uh, an adventurer, a multimillionaire, a ladies' man, and overall a nutcase. And, that's, and that's, that sums up Tony Stark to a T. And Robert Downey um, Jr. <laughs> exactly. Doing some research on this movie, what I found is 
this movie is sort of an allegory for Robert Downey Jr.'s life. How I, how this goes is when Ro- Robert Downey Jr. was an action or was a movie star, and then he got into drugs really bad. And if you look at his autobiography, he said before he got clean, the last thing he had, he was sitting in his car, he was eating Burger King, and realized, you know, what the heck am I doing with my life? He threw the Burger King away, and then he started on a road of getting clean. So if you look at this movie, he's he starts off king of the world, and then he hits rock bottom. And right right before he launches into this new way of of thinking, the last thing he wants before he before he distances himself between him selling these warheads for for not for good for evil. It's he wants a Burger King cheeseburger. It's yeah. ironic that he he wants an American cheeseburger and it's from Burger King. So he goes on his peaceful fast and he rises, and then at the end he says. I am Iron Man. That's his last words of this movie. And this is me, maybe me digging a little deep, but he says, I am Iron Man. And now if you look at Robert Downey Jr., what do you think? He's Iron Man. I do recall um, after this movie, uh, the movie effectively did make me want to go grab Burger King. For the first time in a long time. All right, what's um, next? I got um, this movie. It was actually in um, what they call Development Hell. It was... They started talking about making a movie about Iron Man since 1990. Thank God and, they didn't do it then. Oh, I agree totally. Uh, so at one point, Nick Cage, Nicholas Cage was um, attached to Star, and then it reverted to Tom Cruise, who was going to produ- finance it and star in it. And then it got passed on to a bunch of directors. Uh, Quentin Tarantino being one, Joss Whedon being one, which they all passed on, and it went through. It was going to go to New Line Cinema. It was going to go to Universal, to Fox, to and um. Man, what, what could have been? I know, I know. In the 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 uh, commentary, Favreau mentioned that that he was actually planning to have Sam Rockwell play Robert Downey or play. <laughs> oh my gosh, play Tony Stark in the movie, and eventually went with Robert Downey Jr. This movie was in development hell since 1990, and then finally the rights reverted back to Marvel in 2004. So even with it reverting back to Marvel in 2004, they still had four years to get this movie up off the ground. This was Stan Winston's last film before he died. If anybody knows Stan Winston, he was the the guy who did all the animatronics. He did a lot of prosthetics, real, you know, the movie magic. 90 pounds for this suit. And How do you move was, that thing? I don't recall if it was the first Iron Man movie, uh, a couple of the other ones, or the Avengers movie, but Robert Downey Jr. talked quickly about how if he was going to fall, he had to fall a certain way, otherwise that prop suit would break his legs. I, I just want to add, a 90-pound suit of armor is slight, It's about the same as what knights would wear during jousting tournaments. Oh, Really? I suppose. Yeah, so the Iron Man, the the prop Iron Man suit literally weighed as much as an actual suit of armor. Yeah, but I mean, like, when you're when you're jousting, you're just on a horse and you point a stick. The Iron Man suit has to, like, move around. <laughs> you have to be able to move your joints. That's crazy, though. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, like, it could have been made simpler, but I guess not. Otherwise, you would have sacrificed its presentability. Any more fun facts you got, Mr. Tom? I, I got, yep, I got one more. Um... Uh, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, um, they did a special effects for this movie, and they were doing research on how to make Iron Man fly and make it believable. And how they, what they based it off of is that what they put is they put people in a vertical wind tunnel, and they based all of Iron Man's flying actions off how these people reacted in this vertical wind wind tunnel. I mean, not people just like they just threw me and you in there, but like professional skydivers in there. Well, you get the nice Iron Man look of like, you know, the arms to the side and using the hands as this sort of like adjustable, just instead of the Superman fist front version. Right. And, And knowing that before I watched it again, and you can definitely see that's where they got their inspiration from. Mm hmm. I don't, we definitely do not have time for because of this movie. Uh, I think we've actually gone a little overtime today, but that's all right because this is a freaking fantastic movie, guys. If you haven't seen 
Iron Man. It's awesome. Refer me to the rock you've been living under. <laughs> I have met people who've never seen Iron Man, and I, I have to just gasp audibly at them. That's all I do. I don't even... I will, And then I offer my services. I'm like, I have two copies. Would you like one to borrow? And to do, <laughs> would you like me to explain the movie to you word by word? Because I can do that too instead. But... But this this is a this is definitely a top ten, if not top five, if not top three, m- superhero movie that should and needs to be seen by anyone who is even remotely a fan of action films in general. Um, but that'll wrap it up today. Superhero Movie Club is recorded and produced by Triop Cop Productions. If you like what you hear, show us your support by rating us on iTunes. It's been a while since we've got a rating, so I'm going to I'm going to ask you to say these exact words in your rating. Give us a 5 star and then say Iron Man was the first episode I listened to, whether or not that was true, and these guys are the worst people I've met in my life, but dear god, do I love them to death. Word for word, write that with a 5. And uh, we'll read it again. <laughs> we'll read your name. I don't care. If you want to keep talking about any episode with us, we encourage discussion on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash superhero movie club. We want to know any fun facts you have on the movie. We also post our show notes on there so that you know which clips we've used and stuff like that. And we want you to just, like, if we messed up, that's the place to correct us. SHMC also keeps up an active Twitter feed, at SuperheroMC. So follow us and send us your questions, comments, and suggestions, and we'll use them on the air. So that'll do it today. I'm your host, Michael Maurer. James Skyler Hudsma. And Ben Anderson. Twitter Dom. I hope you all have a super week.